With your Amex card, entertainment benefits like special ticket access and pre-sales to select can't-miss events while supplies last, make every tap music to your ears. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Hey, what up? Welcome in. I'm Doug Gottlieb. This is All Ball. And uh, as part of All Ball, we are going to share with you a conversation, a two-part conversation that I had with uh, Wes Millette. Wes is the athletic director at UC Riverside. If you know that that name, UC Riverside, a couple different things. One, they got Mike McPio as the, the head coach. He is a Filipino-American and was also the coach of the year, a Filipino coach of the year. And together... They've not only won at UC Riverside, won the Big West, but they've saved sports at uh, at UC Riverside. Literally, save sports. So with, with that, part of this conversation, a big part of this conversation, is over NIL, all the changes coming, all the changes that have already come by, everything that's going on in the in the world of college athletics. And he's super unique in his perspective. How unique? Well, he was a student athlete himself. He's worked in the professional space at BET, at Pac-12, you know. Um, he's also worked in a high major athletic department at Cal Berkeley. And, of course, now he works at UC Riverside, which is more low major, or what we all call mid-major now. And so I think it's a, it's a fascinating look, fascinating look at college athletics. And, oh, yeah, by the way, his son – is a talented college basketball player at Pepperdine. And uh, so there's there's a bunch of different layers to it. Let's get into our conversation. Here it is with Wes Millett. Wes, you grew up where? I grew up in North Jersey. Um, so where I grew up, I grew up in a town called Florham Park, basically Florham Park, Madison, Marstown, East Hanover, that area of North Jersey, Mars County, New Jersey. So... Uh, I tell people all the time, you know, growing up in North Jersey, I'm so thankful for it every day because you learn so much about yourself. Um, you learn how to deal with adversity. You learn how to deal with everything that can be thrown at you, including weather, that wherever you go from there in the world, you know, everything is easier. <laughs> so um, were you now were you an all sport athlete or just just football? I was football, baseball, track and field. Um, but growing up, I actually played soccer and because um, my mom wouldn't let my younger brother and I play football until we were a little bit older. Um, so I'll never forget when my brother was able to negotiate us playing football. And that was so we used to I was just telling Michael, 
during the summers, you know, my mom grew up in Mebane, North Carolina, um, and her and my dad was from Wilmington. And so every summer we would ride in the station wagon and I'd be in the back, of, I'd be in the back seat with my younger brother, Chris, there was six of us all together. But my younger brother, Chris and I, we'd be in the back and we were really seeing where we went instead of seeing where we were going. It was that whole deal. No seatbelts, right. you know, all that. Like, yeah, it, we had that. We, that's, how I, yeah. that's how we drove across country. We moved here from New York and we were in the back of a station wagon. Yep. And so you see, you know, you're looking where you've been instead of where you're going. But um, so at one point we were a little bit older and my mom used to hate driving through tunnels. So on the way down, we used to go through, I forget which tunnel, maybe it was the, the, the tunnel in Baltimore. There was one that you go and you go under, obviously it's a tunnel, so you're going under underwater. Um, and my mom was used to hate that. So you should say, okay, Chris and Wes, I need you guys to talk to me, you know, talk me through it. Da, da, da. So my brother Chris says on one condition and my mom's like, what? And she's like, we get to play football if we do this. And so she's like, all right, all right, just talk me through it. So he did it. And we ended up, we started playing football after that. And the rest was history. But the great part about it is I could see my younger brother's negotiation skills because Chris went on to become a lawyer. Um, he played at Princeton. His wife played at Princeton. Um, and he has four boys, three of them. One played in Northern Illinois. One's playing at Iowa right now. And, you know, he's got two more. And his youngest is getting recruited by everybody. You know, so it, it it's it's amazing how it, it started this whole journey of of football and, and sport and life and how we kind of give back in our respective areas. He's a head coach at Chicago Hope Academy out in uh, Chicago. Um and both of us find our passion in giving back through through athletics. And you went to JMU and he went to Princeton. I mean, those are great academic schools. How how was academics in your household? Like how did had had your mom do it? So my mom, um, she raised, um, I have an older sister from my dad's first marriage, my sister, Nancy. Um, and the gap between my, my three, my four older siblings, myself and my younger brother, between me and the next one up is seven years. So, you know, we're, we're, and we're 13 months apart, but education was always critical. So oldest brother went to Harvard, um, sister went to Rutgers, um, cousins went to Columbia. Um, my mom was either the valid, I think she was the valedictorian at Bennett College where she went. Um, then she went to Meharry Medical School. My dad went to Meharry. Um, my dad, they divorced when I was little, but my dad was a, a neurologist. My mom was a psychiatric nurse. Um, so the academic piece was never, um, it could never be compromised. Um, and the athletics component was, as long as you do well academically, you can continue to play. But what we found was the balance was so critical. And the better we did academically, the better we did athletically. So. And our kids, all of our kids, my brothers, sisters, um, myself, all of our kids have done extremely well academically, too. Um, psychiatric nurse. Wow, she must have seen some stuff, huh? Yeah, yeah. So it was, um, again, when we were little, she's, my brother and I were, were, were the test dummies for uh, all the things she had to do, like when she had to work on the restraining holds and see if this worked. And, and here, you know, my brother and I, we're like high school football guys at the time, figuring out where we're going to go to college and all that. And here comes my mom. And my mom was a basketball player because everybody said, where does my son get his basketball skills? And I say from his Grammy, you know, my mom. But she played in a time where, um, you know, it was very tough for girls to play. And her father found out she was playing because she broke her finger in a game and she, you know, had to tell him what happened. And that was kind of it for basketball for her. But um, she was a heck of a basketball player. And then I think that's where my son absolutely gets it from. But my mom used to tell us, she, 
She, we go through the restraining holds with her. And here we are, my younger brother and I are high school athletes, you know, both of us headed to play college somewhere. And she's literally taking us down with like one, two moves, like, these grips, like I can't even begin to describe how painful it was, but I was like, yeah, mom, I think you're going to be okay running that psych unit if anything gets out of hand. So crazy. What, what was your college decision like? So um, initially, uh, you know, we were, this was a time obviously before uh, social media and before videos and everything else, like everything was VHS, you know, you send out. Um, so I initially went to JMU and I was running track. Um, and after my, you know, as I moved to my freshman year, I was like, God, I really miss football. I was going to go to Rutgers to play, but, um, at the last minute, I just decided I, I wanted a different experience. And I went on a visit to JMU and just fell in love with it. Um, so after a year at JMU, after my freshman year, you know, I talked to the coaches and I was like, Hey, you know, it's like, I, I kind of want to get back in. And they were like, okay, well, we know what you've done and where you've been. You're running track here right now. So, um, you know, from that point, I shifted over to football and that was that. Um, but recruiting wise, you know, growing up in the Northeast, um, you really get recruited by a lot of schools in the Northeast, um, especially back in the late 80s. Um, so I'm totally dating myself, but hey, it is what it is. Right. But um, but back then it was, you know, everything was VHS tape. Um, coaches would come out and see you. And, and the, the, the one thing that I learned was your recruitment is only as good as your head coach. Right. And so you have two types of coaches at the high school level. You have the coaches who are there who can really develop young men and women for the next level, whether it's D3, D2, D1, NIA, NAI, whatever it may be. Then you have the coaches who are out there trying to be the big person in the bar on the weekend. Right. Talk about their teams and everything else. So I tell parents when I talk to parents a lot now on the high school side, make sure. I mean, obviously, you have to have the talent, but you want to make sure that your kid has a coach who actually has connections and can push them forward you know, in a way that's going to help them. Um, so I, I, I find, you know, again, that was 30 years ago, but now it's, it's, it's no different. You know, you still have to have coaches who can really connect and, and, and uh, get kids where they need to be. And that lesson that I learned was prevalent or never more prevalent when making a decision when we moved down to Southern California from the Bay area, um, because, you know, we moved between Houston's freshman and sophomore year. And he was, um, he was at Salesian College Prep up in the Bay under Bill Mellis and his whole staff there. Um, just great group of human beings. And the hardest day of my life outside of, um, well, obviously, you know, th there was a lot of hard days, but probably the hardest day as a parent was the day I drove over to Salesian with him and he was telling his high school teammates that he was moving to Southern California between his freshman and sophomore year. I felt like the worst parent in the world. It all worked out. You know, Houston ended up, all CIF three years in a row, sophomore, junior, senior year, absolutely killed it at Pacifica Christian. But more importantly, he helped build the culture of a school because the school was so new. But the thing is, Doug, the reason we chose Pacifica Christian for him, um, he and I, when we talked it through, was Jeff Barakoff, who's the head coach there, unbelievably connected and had anywhere from 40 to 60 Division One coaches in that gym every year. And he was a builder of guards, right? So Houston, when we moved down here, that's why we, you know, we landed in Orange County. And I just made the drive back and forth to Riverside every day um, because that's where he had his best opportunity. And it all worked out. He, I think he ended up with close to 41 offers, um, you know, but that all stemmed from the fact that he had a coach who was connected 
had relationships and was a really good coach on top of that. So let's go back to you. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, most, most stories that have guys that go astray start with a single parent. Okay. But now you're painting a picture of Harvard, Princeton, Rutgers, JMU, uh, Columbia and whatever. And now you go to school and you're running track and then you're deciding to play football. Like, how did you not fall through the cracks? So I think it was, it was basically the way our mom raised us, right? Um, and she taught us a lot of things about life. But the biggest thing is my mom always said, like, the biggest sin that you could commit is squandering the gifts that God gives you, right? And recognizing the gifts that you have, do everything you can to maximize those. You know, it's not going to be easy. Um, nobody said it would be. And especially, you know, when you grow up um, as one of a handful of kids of color, in you know the area of North Jersey that we grew up in, you learn a lot of things really fast. But the biggest thing that you learn is yes, you have to really you have to excel at a level that others don't necessarily have to, just to be in a position where you're on level footing. And I think the thing for me was, um, you know, I knew, you know, you ask how my brothers and sisters and I ended up where we are today, and everybody's doing great things, making tremendous impact in the world. Um, because we learned from her, you know, how important it is to follow your passion um, and pursue that and everything else will follow. And so, you know, my mom would always tell me parenting is the toughest job you'll ever love. I never really understood that till I became a parent. And I think all of us who are parents now really understand what, understood, understand what that means. But um, she just instilled in us a work ethic uh, that was based on that was based on faith, family, um, how you treat people, athletics, um, and just really getting and enjoying life. And no matter where you are, no matter what you're doing, how you treat people is everything. My mom is probably the kindest human being that I've ever been around. There's a lot of people who are nice. There's a lot of people who do nice things, but kindness is something that it it comes from within. And so when I would watch how my mom would maneuver through the most difficult and challenging of circumstances, you know, she worked nights at the hospital, you know, she worked 11 to seven. And so when my younger brother and I, because again, my older siblings were older than us, um, when we get up, we would get ourselves ready for school. We learn how to wash our clothes, do the dishes, iron, um, do all the chores around the house, get ourselves ready to go from the time we were five, six, seven, eight years old. So we had that level of discipline. And that was the thing. We like we are such a disciplined family um, across the board, and we operate with, you know, just a, an incredibly laser focus when it comes to doing the things that we want to be successful at, and what it takes to do it and to be successful. And so we learn, like you're, you know, it's like my boy Mike Tomlin says, "There is no secret. The secret is work, right? You got to work, and you got to put it in." And so that just like showed us, like we watched what she could do, what she did. And we're like, if, if our mom can raise five of us by herself and do the job that she did, we have no excuses, you know? And so I think that set us on the trajectory that we were on. And then she also taught us the importance of being, you know, a, a poor, an important, an important factor in being a, a strong member in your community is to make sure you treat people with kindness and you start there, you know, and everything else from there flows. So that I think is was the key is just how we were raised. Um, I always tell people like I had the best of both worlds. I was raised in the Northeast. So I learned, you know, a lot about 
just toughness across the board. But I was raised by a mom who's from the South. So I learned about compassion, kindness, and just, you know, Southern hospitality, if you will. So combining those things together has been probably one of the most important things for me and things I try to instill in both my son and my daughter. So, Okay. So you hadn't played, what, in a year when you went from track to football? Mm-hmm. So when, when you say, okay, I want to play football, defensive back, wide receiver, like how did it go through your decision on, or their decision on where to use you? So it was um, one of those things where, you know, high school, I was a running back. Growing up, I was a running back. Got to college. Um, you know, we we ran, we we had moved to a three-receiver set. Um, we basically a single back. Um, and, uh, you know, we had like nine running backs in the room. So talked to a couple of the guys who figured the fastest way to get on the field, special teams and being in the top six in the receiver rotation, and you'll get on the field. And so that was the plan. And that's what, you know, I was able to do. Um, you know, it comes back fast. It doesn't go anywhere. Um, and, you know, again, my, my first initial plan was to go to Rutgers and play there. Um, but the hard thing was, it's like, I knew I needed and wanted a different experience. And with Rutgers, like, I mean, at the time, Dick Anderson was the coach there. I mean, they were winning one game a year, every year. So it's like, you're going to go to Rutgers, you're going to get your head beat in and you're not really going to have a great experience. And the thing that I realized with JMU was, holy cow this is a great experience, like from a student perspective and a student athlete perspective, the people were great. You know, the professors and the faculty, tremendous. The culture on the campus was fantastic. Um, and I'd still tell people to this day, I challenge anyone to meet someone who competed at JMU in any sport who had a bad experience. And, you know, Doug, when I look at it and I look at the trajectory that that program has been on and where it is now, um, it's amazing. You know, it's really amazing to see that, you know, where they are 30 years later, but that's intentional. You know, that's investing in your kids. That's investing in the student athletes, investing in the culture and what you're going to build around it. It's kind of what I've modeled UC Riverside around in terms of how we want our student athletes to feel what we want them to experience and how we want them, you know, to walk away from their four or five years here. Like, Holy cow, this was tremendous. Um, because again, it's like, you, you know, as well as I do, like these three, four, five years, you know, four or five years in college, well, I guess now with the COVID year um, and the portal could be up to six, right? But, you know, it's like, it's, it sets the tone for literally for the rest of your life and and how you're going to show up and what you're going to do and how you're going to be. So I want to make sure, and it's not possible for every kid to have a great experience, but I want everybody to experience what I experienced, which was um, great teammates, great program, opportunity, opportunity to be successful, you know, you have a great experience and 30 years later, you know, you're, you're still on this, on text chains with your old teammates who are your best friends and your kids, aunts and uncles, et cetera, et cetera. And it, it just carries on. And you have that, um, that tradition that you've really built um, and the pride that you have, you know, from where you went to school and where you competed. Fox Sports Radio has the best sports talk lineup in the nation. Catch all of our shows at foxsportsradio.com. And within the iHeartRadio app, search FSR to listen live. This is it. We've got an Amex Platinum Pro on our hands, ladies and gentlemen. We haven't seen anyone relax like this before in the Centurion Lounge. Is he connecting to complimentary Wi-Fi? Oh, my. Look at that. He is. And you will not believe where he's going next. The Amex dedicated card member entrance for the win. 
Unbelievable! When you get travel perks with Amex Platinum, you're part of the action. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. So, what is what is so special about JMU? Mm-hmm. Like I've I've been there. It's an incredible campus. Obviously, the facilities now, like mm-hmm. new basketball arena, is incredible. Um, but what what's it really like to be there? What the makes people. it so special? The people and the culture. You know, it's like it's it sounds so cliche, but it's really true. Like, and the culture starts at the top. You know that when I was there, um, Ron Carrier was the president at the time. He was on campus. He's shaking your hand. He he may not remember everybody's name. Obviously, you got, you know, at the time there's 14, 15,000 students, maybe. And now it's 25,000. But he was involved. You know, he was a president who was involved. Um, the faculty were the same way. You know, professors were, you know, when you were on campus and you run into them, they'd sit down, chat you up, have a conversation, ask you about you, how your life was going, how, how you were adjusting, um, et cetera, et cetera. And from an athletic standpoint, um, Casey Carter was, uh, she's a legend. She was our, you know, student athlete, um, academic person and, um, just advisor for, for so many. And here we are like all these years later, the equipment staff, um, the coaching staff on the, in the different teams, but your teammates, like it, th- there's a certain type of kid that would go to JMU and still does just an all around good quality human being. Right. And, when you're around that and it's a feeling that you have, right? We always talk about, yeah, a program could be great on paper and, you know, they could do all the right things, but the culture is really the feeling, right? And what it feels like to be part of it. Here at UC Riverside, I built a culture for us now that's listening and caring. Um, and it meets people where they are to help them get to where they need to go. And I find that from a leadership standpoint, I've taken a lot of my cues um, from what I learned at JMU in terms of how people lead. Um, and I lead with joy, passion, integrity, and purpose, and a whole lot of energy and enthusiasm. But I found that, again, with with Dr. Carrier at JMU um, and the presidents who, you know, succeeded him since he retired and, you know, and since he passed and everything else, it's been, um, it's been unbelievable because everyone who goes there has a similar experience. And I find as a leader, you don't have to have all the stuff, right? We don't have a lot of the the facilities and and we're not competing in the facilities arms race the way we'd want to here at UC Riverside. Right. But what we have is our people and people are the secret weapon because we have coaches who can develop young men and women. Um, We're winning because everybody's bought in. People are aligned, right? We don't always agree, but we're aligned. We have a great chancellor, Kim Wilcox, who every step of the way 
you know, when we talk about stuff, we talk about stuff from the standpoint of here's our endpoint of what we're looking to do and how we want to get there. Then we talk about how we get there together. You know, our head of student affairs, Vice Chancellor Brian Haynes, same way. Um, our head of university advancement, Monique Dozier, same way. You know, our provost, Liz Watkins, same way. And it trickles down. So when you have senior administration and you have athletic staff, AD, head coaches, administration, it trickles down to student athletes and it impacts their experience. So to me, that model of JMU, which is why I'm always so high on it, um, was everything. And that's what makes it different from other places. And I think when you talk to people today, you still see and feel that, you know, purple and gold passion that everybody has for the place. So you get done. What was your plan? Go to Maryland. Got my master's degree at Maryland. Um, was that was that the plan or that that just happened? Like, how did you how, how did how did you decide to go to Maryland to get a master's? So I knew I knew initially I wanted to go into broadcast journalism. Um, and, and this was one of the other reasons that now I'm in college athletics, right? Because at the time I couldn't do the internships because it conflicted with practice. Right. Um, so I went into PR and then I went into, I knew when I was done, I'm like, well, what do I want to do? So I knew I wanted to get my master's degree and I had an opportunity to go to Maryland, um, went to Maryland college park, got my master's there in journalism. And from there, I wanted to combine the undergrad degree in communications and PR with the master's in journalism and really move into entertainment um, and entertainment media, if you will. So um, I'd like to say it was all part of a master plan, but it actually just came together. So when I was at Maryland, um, getting my master's in journalism, I met a gentleman named Craig Muckle, uh, who was at BET at the time. And, you know, Craig was at Black Entertainment Television, and I did an internship with them. The internship two years later turned into a job. And a couple of years after that, I found myself in the role of senior director of communications at BET. And I had a four or five year run at BET, which was fantastic. And that all. Are you, were you working for Bob Johnson? At the time? Yep. I worked for Bob Johnson. Um, I worked under uh, Curtis Simons, who was head of EVP of um, marketing, um, Clint Evans, who was under him, um, and a woman named, she passed a few years ago, Danette Wills, who was absolutely fantastic. Um, on the PR side. And they taught me a lot, so much about, you know, the entertainment side, strategic communications, and really how to build a brand, right? Um, and at the time, during my time at BT, we had a lot of fun. And I think it was probably one of the five, maybe one of the three most impactful and fun experiences of my life, you know, professionally. Um, the other two, probably my time at Cal and UCR here. And then probably the most the most impactful and the most fun was um, launching Slam Ball with Mason Gordon and Mike Tolan and that whole crew in 2002 and 2003, which made it. Okay, well, we, we, you're, you're getting your like you're you're getting ahead of you. I, I want to get to Slam Ball. Like, give me a second, bro. No. Okay, so so you're at BET, uh-huh. and then how'd you decide to leave? Um, I'd done everything I could do at that point. It was time to make the next step. You know, and I find times in. I've been there about four, just under five years. And um, there was really, there was no, the growth opportunities weren't there anymore. And I'm a lifelong learner. I always want to grow. And so uh made the decision to leave and went in a slightly different direction at that point and went to into investor and media relations uh, for Victoria's Secret Parent Company Limited Brands um, and spent a year and a half in Columbus, Ohio, uh, managing media and um, helping on the uh internal or sorry investor relations side 
with on the Victoria's Secret and the Bath and Body Works brand side. Um, loved it, but entertainment was really my thing. And I really am a coastal person. So I knew, you know, I always wanted to be in California. And then the opportunity with MTV Networks came up. And that's how I ended up in Santa Monica. So that was. So you moved to Santa Monica. You moved to Santa Monica. You work in MTV. What was your actual job at MTV? Uh, Vice President of Communications at MTV Networks. What, what were you doing? Um, all media relations, strategic communications, events, um, brand related stuff for the networks. So like MTV, VH1, um, MTV2, uh, MTV Films, um, Nickelodeon Movies. Uh, we did, and the, they started a record label at the time, um, Nickelodeon and Jive Records, and they did one. Um, and really just helping that brand from 01 to 03 when I was there in Santa Monica. How did Slam Ball come to be? Oh, man. So Slam Ball. So when I was making the next move after MTV Networks, um, I worked on uh, Slam Ball my last year there. It was just getting started. And then I just went out on my own um, and Slam Ball was my first client. And um, Mason Gordon, creator and founder, along with Mike Tolan, you know, with Tolan Robbins, um, they were like, hey, we're going to we're going to build this thing. And man, Doug, it was it was it was so much fun, man. It was like you're recruiting. You're you're on the road. You're recruiting guys. You're trying to find individuals who like you're basically building something that is a sport that's airing on television. Um, but you're also building a league, right? And you're recruiting guys. And a lot of the guys that we found either ex football, ex basketball, or the combination of, um, who really weren't afraid to mix it up in a sport that combined, you know, gymnastics, um, basketball, football, hockey, all rolled into one, you know, in the, in the arena that it was played in. And it was amazing. You know, we we did my partners and I at the time, um, we did all the branding for them, we did all the communications, all the media relations side. Um, and then we did whatever it took to help that brand really get off the ground, you know. Um, and it was it was definitely one of the most impactful things because everywhere we would go, you know, when people would watch it, they were like, Oh my gosh, this is the greatest thing ever. And here we are 20-something years later, and Mason Gordon, you know, and company have brought it all the way back. And I know they had to run this past year on ESPN. So it's good to see. How did you get into college athletics? That's a great, that's a great question. So about 15 years into my corporate career, if you will, because um, after MTV Networks, I went up to the Bay Area and helped an ad agency build out its PR, uh, marketing, and event management and engagement uh, department. Because um, ad agencies at the time in the early 2000s were trying to really expand and figure out what else can we do besides traditional advertising and really expand the brands that we're working for. So um, about halfway through it, um, I just realized, I was like, you know, um, I really miss college athletics um, and I really miss building people. You know, the corporate life was fantastic. It was, it was amazing. But like I said, going all the way back to my childhood, leading a life of impact and making an impact is so is so important to me. So um, I was doing a lot of consulting work at the time, um, and you know, circa 2013, connected with a, a gentleman named Phil Esten, um, who's now the athletics director 
um, in Minnesota. Phil was at Cal at the time. Now he's an AD in, in Minnesota, and he took St. Thomas from Division Three to Division One in one year. Um, so Phil and I talked, and Phil's like, hey, we have a real issue here. And again, when you look at all my background, the, the thread, the common thread through all of it is issues in crisis management, strategic and brand communications, and the external relations side. And so Doug, he uh, he's like, hey, man, we've, we're going to need a head of strategic communications an associate for Stratcoms here at Cal. And, you know, I talked to him, met with Sandy Barber, um, and then went to Cal. And the, the whole reason I went to Cal in, at the end of 13 was to help them change the narrative. Because if you remember at the time, Cal was last in the country in football and graduation success rate. And that was a story that their donors and their alums, they, they you know, someone told me when I got there, they were like, some of the donors would rather not go to the Rose Bowl for 50 more years than be dead last in GSR in, in the nation, not in an institution like UC Berkeley. So I got there and I worked with the crew there um, and Herb Benenson and everybody else there. And, and we built a plan to really change the narrative, but also tell the story on how we were going to rebuild the athletics brand um, from a narrative standpoint. We brought in a bunch of media people um, that covered you know, Cal Athletics, talked them through, this is what APR is, this is what GSR is, this is why their GSR was, was last in the country. Because the narrative was, was guys are going to Cal failing out of school, but that wasn't the case. You know, guys, a lot of guys were leaving early and going to the NFL and not coming back to finish. So it impacted the, the, the graduation success rate. So we were able to do that, worked with Sonny Dykes, who was the coach at the time. And within two years, we went from worst to first in the league and the conference in the Pac-12 at the time academically and rose to one of the top teams or most competitive teams in the Pac-12 um, during the time that I was there. And so that's what brought me back into college athletics. And quite frankly, just I missed it. You know, it's like it was something that I had dabbled in here and there as a professional, done some consulting work with. But I knew I also wanted to create opportunities for young men and women in college athletics to have a relatable experience with someone in administration who had walked a mile in their shoes. And quite frankly, for a lot of the kids, someone who looked like them and someone who could guide them when things got really hard and they didn't feel like they were on an island um, or they didn't have people they could relate to, if you will. So that's what brought me back into college athletics. And, you know, 11 years later, I'm in the athletics director's chair. So. Well, give me your best Berkeley story. Oh, man. Like this is Berkeley. Oh, there's so many. <laughs> um, I'm just trying to think of ones that I could say publicly, if you will, because I had many welcome to Berkeley moments. Um so well, one of them, um, I learned about, you know, Berkeley is the home of the professional protesters. Um, we were in, we were in the athletics building uh, and we were in the AD suite. And at the time it was myself, Mike Williams was the AD, took over from Sandy Barber. Um, Chris Pesman, who's now the AD at Houston. Jenny Simon O'Neill, who's still, still there. Um, Ashwin Poor, who's now the AD at LaSalle. Um, I'm thinking Jane Jackson was there too. Um, and a few other people. So we're in the AD suite and all of a sudden we hear, you know, you're, you're used to hearing the protest on campus, but we hear this huge commotion. We're like, what is that noise? All of a sudden it's getting closer and closer. And the next thing we know it's in our building. Right. And it's getting louder and louder. And then the next thing we know we're overrun in the AD suite by about probably 30, 40, 50 kids, however many could fit in there. 
And they all sit down and they're sitting on the floor and they're standing up and they're locking arms. And I'm like looking like, what's happening right now? Like, why are you guys here? What's the problem? What 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 did we do that would cause you to come in here and, and disturb the day like this? And it had nothing to do with us, right? It had some it was some of the issue on campus they were upset about. And I'll never forget, like we sat there and we were like, we were literally we were trapped in our offices for hours. So we ended up um they ended up leaving after a period of time, but we had to call campus police. Um, they had to come in and they just started taking the kids out one at a time, those who didn't leave on their own. Um, but I remember saying to the leadership of the group, I said, here, here's my card, call me and let me sit down and try to help you through whatever your issue is. And so then, Doug, we sat down in the conference room a couple of weeks later and I literally talked them through how to be more effective when they're trying to get their point across for, I, I don't even remember what the issue was. Something with labor on campus had nothing to do with us. But um, they came back like a year later, I ran into them on campus and they told me how much it actually helped, you know, because they were used to just, we're upset. So you help the protesters protest more effectively? I help protesters get their point across more effectively without disrupting everybody's day, if you will, <laughs> you know? So, and they were able to kind of move through it, but it was, yeah, that was one Berkeley moment, man. There, it is the home of professional protesting. Um, but I remember in, in the time I was there, there were a total of 17 days that I did not have an issue or something that we had to work through from an athletic standpoint. Gosh, golly. Yeah. I, I tell people, like, and, and I make no bones about it, it was easier to save the athletics program at UC Riverside from being eliminated than three months on campus in Berkeley in athletics. You know, so the UCs are tough, but that is far and away the toughest one. Um, sometimes I feel like it's, a, you know, when people necessarily difficult, sometimes I feel like, yeah, we don't need to make it. It doesn't need to be that difficult. Um, okay. So how did the path lead you to Riverside? So from Cal, um, I went over to the Pac-12, um, was there for about a year and a half. And the opportunity, um, Tamika Smith-Jones called me, who was the AD here at the time. Um, there was an opportunity. Wait, wait, so wait let me take, take it back real quick. You're, you're at the Pac-12, mm -hmm. okay? And obviously the Pac-12 essentially is no more now. Right. Did you, like, what was that like? What was that, the atmosphere of work like? I will say this. Um, there's a lot of really great people at the Pac-12 who really care about, um, cared about the schools um, and the direction it was going and wanted to do great work. Um, how do I say this? I think it was, um, I think if people are honest, those who were in the Pac-12, whether you, you know, I was school side and conference slash network side, um, I, I don't think anybody could honestly say with the direction that it was going that you could see any other outcome than what happened, you know? Um, well, so let me, uh, let me give my read on it. Okay. Uh -huh. Cause so I remember when conference expansion happened, when they got there and they got their new TV deal. And my thought at the time was, I actually thought obviously the PAC 12 network and having all the kind of regional networks, I thought that was a weird strategy, right? Mm-hmm. So weird. I didn't like the strategy and it, it proved to be a, a real hard strategy to execute. <laughs> but the actual TV deals they got, I thought were home runs considering, again, this is from 
as talent at, at ESPN at the time, what I'd always been told, like those are it, people associated with the success of the sports teams. It's not really how it works, right? Because of the time zone issues, mm-hmm. you know, Pacific time zone, you know, you can't have a game at six. Right. Nobody shows up. You have a game at seven. That's a 10 on the East coast. And two thirds of the viewers of college sports are on are in the Eastern time zone. So you're kind of screwed either way. And TV companies are kind of screwed because they had to play top dollar for something that's not really worth top dollar. So I, you know, I understand there's lots of things that were mismanaged, mm-hmm. but I actually thought that deal was a decent, was a good deal. It was probably over, they, probably overpriced because you're not going to get much value out of some of those late games. Right, right, right. So I can't speak to the deal specifically, um, but I think the the challenges, obviously, you know, that we all face were um, being in a place where the production quality of the games was outstanding, right? Um, mm-hmm. the, the coverage of the games, you know, with the with the producers, the directors, the on air talent, um, the studio shows, outstanding. The hard thing was obviously visibility and distribution, so people could see it, you know. And it was a challenge that was, you know, beyond our control, if you will, those of us in the the day to day. But to your point, I think if it's in a perfect world, I'm sure that if everybody went back and could do it all over again, there's probably a few things that be, they would do differently. Um, but I think also it's it's I will say this. I think the lesson if, if you we always talk about, like, don't miss the lesson. Right. What was the lesson? I think if you talk to the athletic directors who were in the Pac-12 during that time period from 12 to to, to this year, 12 to 23, if you will, um, and those who've left and are different places now, um, you'll hear a common theme which will be consistent. And that is sometimes, you know, you, you have to listen to the experts in the room. And I don't think the experts in the room who were the ADs were listened to enough. You know, um, the decision makers, the presidents and the chancellors, um, you know, working with the commissioner and company. Um, yes, they they made decisions that they made. But I don't think I, I don't think that enough people. When a lot of decisions on whatever level they were being made, were listening intently or listening and really adhering to what the ADs were saying with the experiences that they, they were going through and what they needed to really keep their programs competitive, you know, with the SEC, the Big Ten, and what they were doing. Um, and quite frankly, when the ACC network came online and launched and just, you know, just crushed it out the gate, you know. So I think that the lesson is, as you go forward, conference offices need to make sure they're really listening to the leadership in the room from an AD standpoint, um, and that the ADs are aligned with their presidents and chancellors and that those discussions are happening before decisions are made, you know, at a higher level. Okay, so now how'd you get to Riverside? So, so okay, so Tamika Smith-Jones, um, she was looking for a senior associate AD for strategic communications and external relations. And it was in my wheelhouse. And I missed being on campus. It was an opportunity to get back on campus. Um, and there was a, they had a need. And the need was established Division One relevancy. Um, and that, you know, I'm one who will never back down from a challenge. Like I love a big challenge. Um, said, okay, we could do this. 
And so I said, look, it's going to be a three-year endeavor to really get it to where it needs to be. And here's how we're going to do it. Um, two years into it, you know, so I, it all worked out, took the job, moved down here, Southern California. Um, and three years in, two years in, um, we're going through uh, COVID and um, they there was the threat that the entire program was going to be eliminated. So now it's like, you know, we've worked hard to establish division one relevancy. And now we've got to work in lockstep with the, with the senior administration on campus to keep the program, the whole thing, not just like five, seven sports or one or two sports, all 17. Um, so it's like, okay, again, big challenge, but going all the way back. So what my mom had prepared us for no challenge. Life is going to be too big if you prepare for it. Right. So we prepare, focus and execute. It's what we do. And so, um, Tamika took a job with Kennesaw State and left to be their COO in, in Atlanta. And I was made the interim AD. And then I worked with um, with all the appropriate people. We built a plan. And the plan included a financial sustainability model, included an operational excellence model, operational efficiency model, um, an excellence model in terms of how we were going to compete in spite of not having certain things, in spite of having to cut almost $3 million from the program during covid to figure and survive, to figure out how we're going to go forward. So we're able to do it. And here we are, you know, three years later, I'm entering year six now, um, four, year four is EAD. But here we are with all the lessons, in my opinion, that I've learned throughout my career, all came full circle with having to save the program. But the most important one, Doug, was really understanding like, hey, um, there are no days off of leadership, right? Leadership is hard. But if you do it the right way, and you get people aligned and everybody's on that same mission, here's how we do it. And that's what we're able to do. So now, um, you know, we're, we just came off arguably our most successful year ever. One of them at the division one level, two coaches of the year in men's basketball, men's soccer, multiple student athletes of the year in different sports um, number, you know, double digit, all conference, you know, uh, players um, academically, our entire program is at just under 3.2 GPA. Um, every team, all 17 teams are above a 3.0. Um, people are happy. The culture's great. And even in the midst of everything that we're dealing with, and by the way, I listened to a, I listened to the pod that you did with Belzer. That was fantastic, by the way. Um, and we work with Jason and with our collective. Um, he's probably, in my opinion, the smartest person in the room when it comes to that stuff. And if not the, the smartest, he's in the top three. Um, but with all the issues that we're dealing with across the NCAA landscape, to me, we're going to be okay simply because we have the core things in place, the people, the culture, you know, the alignment, the mindset, how we work with campus, um, and just figuring out how we get to where we need to be by being good stewards over the resources we have while we work to acquire those that we want and those that we need. So that's the the long and short on, on the journey the path to and where we are now at UC Riverside. This is it. We've got an Amex Platinum Pro on our hands, ladies and gentlemen. We haven't seen anyone relax like this before in the Centurion Lounge. Is he connecting to complimentary Wi-Fi? Oh, my. Look at that. He is. And you will not believe where he's going next. The Amex dedicated card member entrance for the win. Unbelievable. When you get travel perks with Amex Platinum, you're part of the action. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. 
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet that's right up to $1,500 again sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in Ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park that's 1-800-GAMBLER Okay, so for people who don't know, mm-hmm. okay, so you you take over as AD exactly when? January of twenty one. Okay, so you'd been this is, co- this is right in the middle of COVID. January twenty one. No. Yep. So twenty one, twenty two, twenty three, twenty four will be my fourth year. Okay, so this is smack dab in the middle. When was COVID? Was twenty right? COVID was March of twenty until twenty two, twenty one. And COVID was about two years, right? Give or take. Uh, it was like a, well, it started in March of. March of 20. It started in March. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I guess it was over pretty much the next end of the, the next March, right? Wasn't it? Or yeah, we're kind we had the limited NCAA tournament that next year. Yeah. And we're still probably about a year and a half, give or take. I mean, it's, it, yeah. we all have COVID brain now, right? Like just trying to remember. Yes, totally. Totally. So, okay. So w- when were, when, what were you doing? When was the, 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 the programs going to be eliminated? When, when, when did that come? That was made public August 29th of 21. No, August 29th okay. of 20. August 29th of 20 is when it got. Okay. It was made, when it was made public. Mm-hmm. When was it made privately known that, holy cow, we may shut down our athletic programs? Don't know because I found out when it was made public. So. Okay, so where where were where were you at that moment? Mm-hmm. The moment I found out that it was out there, um, I was at home, and I was in the garage because I'd set the garage up as a garage office. Um, and I remember I got a call. I don't remember who the call came from, but somebody called me and told me that this was out there, and I was like, "Wait, what?" And so I looked at it, and I was like how public is this? Because it was kind of buried on a website somewhere. Um, and then once I realized it, I think it was about three or four days later, we huddled and we started building a plan on, on what we what we needed to do to kind of turn this thing around. Um, Tamiko Smith-Jones was still here at the time as the AD. So it might have been Tamika who called me. I don't remember who called. But um, talked to Tamika, talked to the senior athletics advi- leadership team at that time. Um, and we just went to work. And started building a plan on on what we needed to do to to make sure this didn't become a real a real thing. Um, because here's the thing: we were watching. I think it was Stanford had to cut seven sports, was it? And then eventually had to bring them all back. Clemson had to cut some. William and Mary um, schools all around the country were cutting because you know people were we were in COVID and nobody knew what was going to happen and budgets were of concern, et cetera, et cetera. And then I believe pretty much all the programs that cut sports had to end up bringing them all back, right? Um, cause that's one thing you never really went on. Um, 
So, so yeah, I think it was, I was in my garage, you know, in my garage office, my COVID garage office. Um, and I was just, I was stunned. And then when it became real, when it's like, okay, this is actually a real thing. And we have to really kind of figure this out was about four days later when we were meeting on it early September, right before Labor Day that time. What was your idea? How did you think it was going to get fixed? Or did you think it wasn't saveable? No, I, I believe it was saveable. Um, and the reason for that is because I was like, th- there's two things, right? One, I knew as we kind of went into it, we had to, ma- I had to make sure that I threaded the needle of, you know, cause it wasn't adversarial. So I had to make sure that it wasn't adversarial. It was, it was out there because literally it was a financial decision that or financial possibility that people were talking about. Um, but so I knew, okay, we just have to make the case, make the point, but I knew we needed to win the court of public opinion. Um, we need to make people aware of it and we needed to make sure that the campus knew campus leadership knew if we're able to do this, here's how we can do it. Because the questions were on the table. Do we eliminate it? Does it go division three, division two? Does it stay division one? What does that look like? And how do we kind of maneuver in that space? And so I knew there was only one way to go, which was to remain division one. So we worked with them. They put a task force together. Um, I worked with the task force. And, I, and Collegiate Sports Associates, CSA, they came in and did an assessment of not just where our program was, but where mid-major programs of like similar size and like-mindedness uh, with respect to the academic UC deal and everything else, where they were and how they were faring. Um, and you know as well as I do, Doug, a handful of programs in the nation are profitable. Everybody's in the red, right? This is, you have the academic model for athletics and you have the business model for athletics. The business model is a lot of what you and Belzer were talking about, you know, in your podcast with him. Um, that's where, you know, the, the the money game is being played, if you will, right? The academic model is where 90% of Division One universities operate at. The mid-majors, the group of five for the most part, and the lower level pack fives where we're still in that academic model, you know, where it's not, you know, if you have football, your football program is not, you know, bringing in millions and millions of dollars to the university. You're there and you're educating kids and you're building the programs the right way. So bring it all the way back. Um, the plan that we put in place to fix it involved making sure all the stakeholders were 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 apprised of the situation. Um, our donors, our fans, alums, um, the alumni, uh, our current student athletes, parents, media, uh, you name it, you know, folks on campus. And then it was, how are we going to tell the story about why we're here and the mission of athletics and why it's important. So we engaged in that. Um, we did a, a, a petition, an online petition. I'm drawing a blank on what those things are called again. You know, the ones where everybody signs. Um, oh gosh, I'm drawing a blank on it. But uh, we did one of those and it, it garnered 15,000 signatures. Um, there was a letter writing campaign uh, to campus administration to let them know how people were feeling. Um, and then I just went on a media blitz and did a lot of interviews, you know, all over the country, um, halftime of some of our games on ESPN, uh, others, you know, talk shows, et cetera, et cetera. And just told the story of why athletics at this level really matters and the ultimate impact, the negative impact of losing an athletics program, especially at a university that's following the education model um, and especially at a UC, you know. Um, and then we were able to make the case. And so we, you know, we were on May um, May of 2021 um, or May of 2022, uh, we received word that the program was going to go forward. Um, and it was a great day. 
you know, but what kept me going through the whole thing, um, every night for 11 months or however long it took, when I would wind the night down on my screen, I would have, I'd go through each team and I'd look at the faces of all of our student athletes and our coaches and our staff. And I realized like, Hey, um, failure is not an option here. You know, these are the individuals that you're fighting for every day to keep this program going. And, you know, when I would look at their faces, I knew like it, it, it's real, you know, when I was on campus, cause we were back on campus in October of 20, you know, cause we were still doing games. You remember that we were trying to figure out games with no fans for basketballs. We were starting all that. So we were, we were full go the whole time. Um, but when I'd see the kids or student athletes, when I'd see the coaches, see their family, see their friends, I knew like, Hey, you know, it's like, dude, you can't fail. Failure is not, you cannot fail at this one. Dude, losing is not an option here. All right, that's it for part one of the combo with Wes Millette. Stay tuned for part two. Reminder, the Doug Gottlieb Show airs daily, 3 to 5 Eastern time. It's uh, also on a 12 to 2 Pacific. You can download that podcast. Just type in Doug Gottlieb Show. Wherever you download this podcast, you can probably get that one as well. And I truly appreciate you joining me. I'm Doug Gottlieb. This is All Ball. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. See for yourself when you sign up today and get $150 in bonus bets when you bet just $5. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.